really no extraordinary heroes in this book. Um, in fact, <clears throat> one could ask, because in the timeline of Esther, it, Esther takes place um, after, uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's 55 years or so after the first wave of Jewish exiles were released and sent and allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And uh, King Cyrus of Persia, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he said, anybody who wants to go back to Jerusalem, y'all just go. The exile was over. Uh, it, it could be, it could be the one question could be asked, why did y'all stay? Why didn't y'all go back to Jerusalem? So there's a lot of things that uh, we're going to talk about like that in this book, but there's no miracles, no extraordinary heroes. Um, it's just simply God working through flawed individuals to protect his people in exile. That's what the book is about. And you know the story. It's going to be a decree to wipe out all the Jews, and it's because of Esther and Mordecai that the people are saved. Um, God's not mentioned, not one time in the whole book of Esther. But in the story, we see his hand everywhere, in every work and every detail. So it's going to kind of be like Ruth in the fact that God is providentially, unmistakably working behind the scenes to make sure everybody's in the right place at the right time and the right things happen so that God can bring his choice, Esther, to the throne of Persia and save the Jewish people from annihilation. Um, there, uh, the main difficulty with the book of Esther is that the book is meant to be read in one sitting. So the way we do, you know, we'll take chapter one and then next week we'll do chapter two. And that, that's difficult with the book of Esther because the truths that we glean in the early chapters are often informed by what we know is going to happen in the later chapters. And so a story is meant to be read in one sitting. It's only 10 chapters or so. And as the story unfolds, so to apply the book to our lives, we need to know the whole story before we begin. So to introduce the book to us tonight, before we begin chapter one, uh, rather than me just telling you everything that happens, I, I found another one of those Bible project videos of Esther. And it's only about seven minutes. And I'm going to show it to you. And it's just going to kind of walk through the whole story. Um, those Bible Project, it's BibleProject.com. They've got a lot of videos that kind of sum up books. I haven't watched them all, so there may be some on there that are not good, but this one, this one was pretty good. So let's watch it together, and it's just the introduction to the book of Esther, okay? Will you play that video? I don't know if I have it in the right spot. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And the main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? 
But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther's going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. 
and he has the Royal Chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story's been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral examples as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we began, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? 
Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. All right, you got it? Here we go. Sweet. Do we, do we even need to go through it now, now that we know what it's all about? That was a trick question. Okay, any questions before we start? We're just going to do chapter one. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a translational whatever, scaffolding to hang him, pole to stick him on. Uh, ESV is going to say hanging, scaffolding hanging, yeah. So yeah, that, like I said, they're, they're just videos to give us the overview. Any other questions? Yes. So Susa, the capital in Persia, is going to be right around Iraq in that region. But the empire of Persia stretched from, verse 1 is going to tell us they had provinces from India to Ethiopia. So it was pretty much all the known world except for Greece and all, all that. So it, was, it stretched a pretty, pretty good way. And we're going to talk about where we are in biblical history and the story and all that kind of stuff. So, well, let's just go ahead and do that now. So where Esther happens, the, the time frame, so Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, that's uh, 586, 587 B.C., and the people of Ju Judah went into captivity into Babylon. The northern kingdom, Israel and Ephraim, had already been in captivity in Assyria. The people of Judah went into captivity, into exile, and they stayed there in Babylon. In about 538, uh, King Cyrus rose to power in Persia. Persia became a, a world power, an empire. And in 538, Persia conquered Babylon. And so now Persia is the big dog. It's media, media Persia. They're the big dog on campus. They're the, uh, the big power. And you probably have heard of Cyrus because it was prophesied many years earlier that Cyrus would issue a decree to free the Jews from exile. And he did. Uh, it was right in that year, 538, where he conquered Babylon. He issued a decree that any of the Jews who wanted to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and do whatever, they were free to go. But many of the Jews decided not to go. A lot had become, quite frankly, comfortable in, in Babylon. So the first wave of Jews returned with two men, one named Zerubbabel and one named Joshua. Zerubbabel was kind of the, the governor, the political leader, the king, if you want to say he wasn't actually a king, but more like a governor. And Joshua was kind of the high priest figure, and they led the people back. And it was 80 years later that Ezra went back with another group of people. We have that chronicled in the book of Ezra. And then 25 years or so after Ezra, Nehemiah went back with a group of people and rebuilt the walls. So Esther, the story of Esther and what we find here begins around 55 years after the first wave went back to Jerusalem. 
And it's about 25 years before Ezra and then Nehemiah went back. Y'all with me? So we, first wave goes back and it's, it's 80 years before Ezra goes back. So it's in between the first and second wave of Jews going back to uh, Jerusalem. The reigning king of Persia at this time in the book of Esther is called Ahasuerus. You probably know that name if you've read the book of, of Esther. He is the son of Darius, who, you know, Daniel and all that, dealing with Darius. And he is the grandson of Cyrus, who in, initiated the decree. History knows Ahasuerus as, anybody know? Huh? Say it again. You knew that. I'm so, I, that's wonderful. Who said that, Jim? Look at you with the big brain on Jim. <laughs> Xerxes the first. Yes, Xerxes the first. And you know who Xerxes is, even though you don't know who, you, you may not know that you know. We'll talk about him in just a minute. So chapter one begins, like the, the introduction said, showing us, the whole point of chapter one is to show us the grandeur, the, the wealth the power of the king, Ahasuerus, and the Persian Empire. But at the same time, and this is why I titled it The Emperor Has No Clothes, it shows us also that the powers of this world, in particular Ahasuerus and Persia at the time, are just ridiculously inept and foolish. Uh, chapter 1 is meant to make us laugh. It doesn't seem that humorous to us because we're so far removed from the writing style, but it's meant to make us chuckle at how stupid this really is, uh, how pompous this, this guy really is. But it's also meant to show us that when, when there are evil and immoral and even incompetent people in power and the Jews were exiles, they were not people of status, they were people with no power whatsoever, God is still in control to bring his protection over them, to flourish them, to protect them, and to ultimately bring his promise to fruition. Y'all fruition, y'all with me? All right, so what we're going to do is we're just going to read verses 1 through 22, and I'm going to try to get through chapter 1 pretty quickly. It says this, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So the capitals right there around, around where Iraq is, uh, but the empire spread wide. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, it's going to be important in a minute, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. They all came from all over the empire. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. They had a feast for how long is 180 days? Yeah, six months. Six months. That's a long party. And it says, and when these days were completed, the king gave another feast for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So this is not just for the leaders and the military people, it's for everybody that's in Susa. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. It's quite a nice place. 
Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. They made a law about drinking. Here's the law. There is no compulsion, meaning do whatever you want to do. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, meaning he was wasted, uh, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned with him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him, or the men before his face, it says literally, being all them guys' names, I'm not going to read them again, uh, princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and, and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memachan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's, queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, here's their advice, let the royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memachan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Got it? All right. So we're going to start over at the chapter, at the first few verses. And it says, in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus reigned India and Ethiopia, 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, which was the citadel, the, the, the winter palace, basically, of Persia, third year of his reign, he gave this feast for the, look who's there, official servants, army of Persia, army of Media, nobles, governors of the provinces were before him. And what was the purpose of the feast? To show off the glory, the wealth, the power, the splendor of not only King Ahasuerus, but also of the Persian Empire. Now, you know who Ahasuerus is, although you may not know you know. Uh, the third year of Xerxes' reign began in about 486. So in the third year, we're, this is about 483 B.C. 
So I already said Susa was one of the four capital cities, the winter capital. Uh, and the king threw this extravagant feast for his officials, nobles, army leaders, governors, all the provinces. Party lasted 180 days, six months. Seems kind of extravagant, a long time. Uh, and the reason was just what it says, to show off all his stuff, his glory, his greatness, the empire's wealth. Why did he do this? Esther, the book of Esther doesn't say, but we do have a clue from history. So this is for around 483, which would be the third, third year of the reign of Xerxes, of Ahasuerus. In 480, three years later, Xerxes was the king of Persia who led the Persian army to war against Greece. Have you heard of that battle? Xerxes is the king whose army was delayed for two days at the pass of Thermopylae by the 300 Spartans. So this is that Xerxes. Now, you may have seen that movie. That's not what he looked like, okay, please. Uh, and despite, the, despite what you may have heard, there were more than 300 Spartans at the, the pass at Thermopylae. There was actually like 7,000 Greeks, but all that stuff doesn't get put in the movies either. Um, interestingly enough, the historian Herodotus tells us, who's not a Christian, not a Jew or anything, just a, a Greek historian, he tells us that before the invasion of Greece, Xerxes assembled all the Persian nobles and all the leaders and all the military people to advise him about the war <coughs> and to show the, the might of the Persian Empire. Uh, so it's reasonable to me to see that this gathering, he's gathering the military figures to impress them with his power and grandeur to drum up support for this military campaign that's about to take place. Ultimately, if you know the, the history of that, of that military campaign, he was going to avenge his father Darius, who was killed in the Battle of Marathon, and uh, he, ended up, he ended up dying, not dying, but he ended up being defeated too, uh, and so Ahasuerus, Xerxes, came back home in defeat. Um, but he was throwing this six-month banquet, showing off wealth, showing off all his stuff, impressing these people with the power and glory so they would rally to him. So chapter one of Esther happens before Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and the Persian army go off to war. He's ultimately defeated, and he comes back, and we're going to see in chapter two, chapter two, verse 16, tells us it's four years later when he has this beauty pageant to find his new queen. So he deposes Queen Vashti, they go off to war, they get defeated, they come back, and now he, now he starts to replace Queen Vashti. Y'all with me in history? Okay. Anybody care? I mean, that was, that's all fascinating to me, but most, most people don't care, right? Okay. I thought it was pretty good. All right. Thank, thank you, Susan. Thanks for the encouragement. It's not really pertinent to the story, but it does give us kind of a historical context of where we are. Now, this first chapter is meant to show us just the lavish, incredible wealth, splendor, power of, of Persia. After the 180-day party for these nobles and the leaders and governors and military officials, then he throws a seven-day party for everyone who is in Susa. It says, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, all the people, great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver rods, and, and, and marble, marble pillars, 
it says there were couches made of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. What is porphyry? Anybody know? Is it granite? I have no idea. We'll just leave that to, we'll file that for, in the I don't know file. Marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the king's bounty. The author has given us all these details to show us this. I mean, this is incredible. Like, it's meant to, it's meant to, to be awe-inspiring, the wealth and the just grandeur of this uh, of this empire, but also of the king's palace and, and, and all of this, the ground that the guests walked on and the seats on which they sat were made out of materials that most people would have had locked away as precious treasures. It was just filled with all of these riches just beyond compare. And, and you're not just meant to see wealth and glory here. You're also meant to see the power and the rule over which, over the empire, which uh, Ahasuerus and the Persian officials had. Uh, all power, all power resided in this one man's hand. And he had his advisors, but he was all powerful in the Persian Empire. Verse 8 and 9 said, the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. So you see what he, the Persians were, they, they regulated everything. Everything was by decree. You go back and look at Daniel and they talk about giving decrees that nobody's going to pray. And that, I mean, there's decree after decree after decree. So it's not a matter of, hey, let's get this law in and we'll pass it amongst. No, one guy says, this is what's going to happen. And this is a decree for all of the kingdom. And that's it. And it cannot be repealed. It cannot be repealed. So they regulated all this stuff. And here there was a law that had to be given that told people they could do whatever they wanted. You see it? I mean, when it, when it came to drinking anyway. <clears throat> so they had to pass a law to make sure the people knew the law says you can do whatever you want to do. The power was so centralized and so total that the, the law needed to be decreed so the people knew that you're free to do whatever you want to do. Now, in this section, the stage is set. We have the glorious, powerful, and wealthy king of the most powerful empire in the world, um, he wields total power over, total control over his servants to, as you saw and that we're going to see later in the, in the text, to, to even approach the king with a question meant death. If he, did, if he didn't call for you and you, you showed up in his presence, you died. There was no appeal. There was no anything. It was total control, total power. And this guy is ridiculously inept. Uh, this emperor really... In the rest of the section, we see that that's why I put he has no clothes. Because his control, although it is complete, it is total, there is no questioning it, his control is not as total as he thinks it is. Through this book, we'll see that God's in control, of course. But before we get there, the king and the empire are shown just how, we're shown just how ridiculously inept they really are. The next scene is meant to make us laugh. It's ridiculous on, on so many levels. In verse 10, he says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, he's drunk, he commanded all of these guys to go and bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Ohasuerus has been drinking for at least seven days. I mean, I'd hate to think he's been drinking for six months and seven days. I, I don't know how he's even alive, but 
in his drunkenness, it says he's, his heart is merry with wine, he orders the queen to be brought before the feast, and she refuses. Why do you think he wanted her brought before the princes and all the people at the feast and the royal court? Beautiful. But what's his aim? Is it just, my wife is really beautiful, I want y'all to see her. What does he want? Yeah, he wants to show off. He's been doing it for 180 days. I want you to see my power. I want you to see my gold. I want you to see my wealth. I want you to see my, and now I want you to see my gloriously beautiful wife. And she refuses to come. Um, he, he is, he's wanting to sh show her off before all of these drunken men. You know, that she would be his trophy. He'd treat it as, I don't know, a doll, possession, or a prop, you know. The author doesn't tell us exactly why she refuses, but it's not hard to see why she would refuse, is it? So, Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And at, the king, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people will take this and say, Queen Vashti was just a, just a great example of standing up for yourself. And, or some other people will say, Queen Vashti is a bad example of not obeying your husband. And they'll make a whole... None of that is what this is about. None of that is what this is, the author is wanting us to see. What he's wanting us to see, whether, whether he doesn't tell us whether she is virtuous or not virtuous in not coming or whether her refusal to come is good or bad. That's not the point. The point is to show how it came about that a simple Jewish girl could ascend to the throne of Persia and God use her to protect his people from being destroyed from the most powerful empire on earth. But it's also showing us that this great king drumming up support for his military campaign in total control of Persia, total control of his servants, total control of the people. What he decrees <clears throat> comes to pass. You can't even come into his presence without dying. Here he is intending to show off his wealth and power and one simple word from his wife, no, shows that he's not quite as powerful as he thinks he is. And it probably embarrasses the heck out of him to all of these people who he's, in try, he's trying to impress. He's showing off his power and glory and he's wanting to drum up support for this thing. And all of a sudden, I want you to see my wife. And she says, nah, not coming. The king spent 180 days showing the power and glory of the empire. And it turns out he doesn't even wield power over his own family. If Ahasuerus is really showing off his power and wealth to draw up support for this military campaign, which is not in the text, but it is historically what, what I think is going on, his wife's refusal would have made him look weak. It would have made him look foolish, which is why he becomes enraged and his anger burns within him. But that's not the end of the ridiculousness of this king. This great, powerful, glorious king who's just been disobeyed by his wife has to ask his advisors what to do by law about his own family squabbles. 
In verse 13, he says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him, being all these guys who saw the king's face, sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered uh, by the eunuch. So here's where it gets really ridiculous. Advisors, the advisors, he asks them rather than going to his wife, rather than making a decree, rather than doing anything. He is just seen as this drunken, inept goofball, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how another way to say it. So my wife just said no, even though I'm the most powerful man on the planet and I'm drumming up the most powerful army that the world has ever seen to go attack Greece. And we have all this wealth, all this splendor, all this stuff. My wife just said no. Hey, guys, what do I do? Really? Man, you are, what a, what a powerful king. No, he's shown to be, he's shown to be not as powerful. That's why he, he's really not, he is a villain, but he's really not the villain. The villain is Haman throughout the book. <clears throat> so he asked his advisors what to do. And, and this, this is, it's mind blowing how, how stupid this is. His advisors advised him that this is not just family trouble. This is not just domestic trouble in the royal household. This is a national emergency. This is a worldwide crisis in the Persian Empire. And if it's allowed to stand, the whole Persian Empire is going to come crumbling down. They say in verse 16, when this guy said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The great, powerful, wealthy empire about to go conquer the world, even though they were defeated, is now in fear that it's all going to come tumbling down because wives won't listen to their husbands. One woman's defiant act caused a contempt, a, a, a ripple effect of contempt and wrath throughout the whole empire. Hold on, I, I thought you just said, I thought you just said Ahasuerus' rule was absolute. It don't seem that absolute anymore. This is, when this story was told during the Feast of Purim to the Jews, it, the first chapter was, was meant to make them laugh. It was ridiculous. Um, so you don't see his grand power. It's not as grand as he thinks anyway. So I love this. this is, uh, you just can't make this up. What are they worried about? They're worried about all the women in the Persian Empire finding out what Queen Vashti did. So how do we fix it? Let's send a decree out to all the provinces about what Queen Vashti did and tell them all that he's, he's so stupid. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her a royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree uh, made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And then he says, 
And then he says, uh, this, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as m- m- this guy said. <clears throat> he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and every people in his own language, that every man be master in his household and speak according to the language of his people. The law should say, he says, Vashti's to be banished from the king's presence. King's going to find another somebody to be queen. And that all wives in the Persian Empire will honor their husbands. So the king sends this decree out to every province in the empire. That is ridiculous. It's the height of ridiculousness and stupidity. If he wanted to protect the assumption of his absolute power and glory, he failed miserably because he basically publicized it all over the empire. He doesn't even have power over his own wife, the great king Ahasuerus. Now, the point of this is not, we can, you know, you can dig into the minutia of this and there's lots of sermons about, the point is about husbands and wives and what you should do, feminism on the rise or marriage troubles or, we can find those truths about husbands being head of the wives all all through the New Testament, all through, so that's, that's not in question, but that's not what the writer is trying to get across here. This is a ridiculous picture of unstable people in control of all the power in the empire. Here is a world in the hands of incompetent and self-absorbed people. It is the empire that many of the Jews still inhabit. They dwell there in exile. God's people seem to be as Esther opens, at the mercy of this incompetent, inept ruler with absolute total power, ridiculously thinking that his decree is is law and he can do whatever he wants and the advisors are covering their own selves. The Persian Empire is, the point of this is, the Persian Empire is not a safe place for the Jews. We're going to later see that this unstable man, the king, is also influenced to make a decree to execute all of the Jews. Just because one guy, you saw it on the screen, Haman, just because one guy says, I don't like this guy, let's kill all of his people. They're in an unstable environment where unstable people, immoral people, incompetent and ridiculous people have all the power in the world and there's nothing you can do about it we're going to see that's the whole story of esther is this this interplay of of um you know should i go into the king's presence knowing that i I could be killed just just walking into until he summons me i can't go and you have this interplay of just this power centered in this in this one man and this one kingdom this one empire and the jews god's people have no power whatsoever still left in exile they they're not even not even uh um uh, able to go and make a case before the king you enter into his presence without a summon you die and so this is not a safe place because not only are they evil not only are they immoral not only do they not care about life and death but they're crazy and they're inept and they wield incredible power and they have incredible wealth and they have incredible strength there is no defeating this empire But God is still in control. 
And that's really the point. So to, to apply this, and it's hard, you know, that's why I said the story's meant to be read in one sitting so you can see it all at once. Um, we as Christians are, are, are like people in exile. Peter, Peter says it in his letter that we are people in exile, uh, foreigners and sojourners in this world. There's a temptation for us to either despair because of all of the power that is wielded by the world or there is you know, a, a temptation to despair because there's no hope for us to affect any, any kind of change. The, the sentiment is anyway, there's no hope. There's also a temptation to, for us to assimilate and a lot of the Jews in Persia did just that. They assimilated into the culture of Persia, into the, into the daily moorings of the Persian system, the world system, to assimilate, to look like the world, to act like them, in their case, Persia, to try to be accepted by the world, to try to live by the standards of the world. I mean, you have no power. All power is centralized there and is wielded by immoral people and incompetent people and corrupt people. There's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well just try to assimilate yourself and try to stay below the radar, try to be accepted by them, save ourselves from hardship. But the truth is, and Esther shows us this, we don't have to do either. We don't have to be in despair because of the power structures of the world. We don't have to assimilate ourselves to the power structures of the world in defiance of God's holy word. This book shows us that God is in control and he is perfectly capable of accomplishing his will and protecting his people even through seemingly hopeless scenarios like uh, total control in the hands of a crazy man. Even through events that seem irrelevant. Now think about this for a moment. The Jews in exile in Persia would not have cared one bit about anything that happened here today in Susa, if any were even in the feast. There could have been some because it said everybody in Susa was invited to the feast for seven days, but even they could have cared not one bit who was queen or whether Xerxes is able to save face because his wife made him look like a fool. They might have enjoyed it, but they, they couldn't have cared not one bit. This has nothing to do with us, and so what? But even in this episode, in this first chapter, we know, because we know the story of Esther, God is doing something here. God is working here. God is working to place his instrument in the role of queen to save his covenant people from destruction that they don't even know is coming. God is working in all of these events even though they can't see it. And the same holds true today. He's working in our lives and in all the machinations of the world to deliver his people. Doesn't mean that we won't go through trials. Doesn't mean that we won't have suffering. Doesn't mean any of those things. But it does mean that Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Amen. Questions, comments? <laughs> Let me guess. Let me guess. The Jewish rabbis, when they, when they commented on this verse, 
they said that when, when Ahasuerus told Queen Vashti to come with her crown, it meant and nothing else. And that's why she refused. That's a theory. Yeah, that, that is a theory. Uh, the, Persian, the Persians, believe it or not, the Persians were a, a people that were concerned a lot about modesty. That's why that, that theory hadn't, hadn't gained traction. There's also another theory that says, <clears throat> so if, if this is 483, which is the third year of Xerxes' reign, he went to war in 480, um, this would be, Vashti would be big pregnant with Artaxerxes, his son. And that's why she didn't want to come. It's possible. I don't know. I don't know. All we know is we're not told why she didn't want to come. We're not told that it was good or bad that she didn't want to come. Uh, we certainly can understand it even from the standpoint of I'm not going to let you parade me around in front of all these drunk guys. You know, I mean, that's, that's perfectly understandable why she wouldn't come. Uh, so, but it's easy to get lost in the weeds in a book like Esther, which is narrative, because we want to, you know, we want to we look at the events and we want to try to make some spiritual application out of every single decision, every single event, when the reality is chapter one is just the setup. Chapter one and two, really, are just the setup. And the point is to show us the absolute power of the king and the empire, the, abs the grandeur, the wealth, the splendor, and how it, is, it looks like it is the greatest and most formidable uh, power that the world had ever seen at the time. And it is, it's inept, it's ridiculous, uh, it is um, not... Not fair, you know, we can say it that way, it's not fair. But even in, even in this kind of empire, even in this kind of rule under a king who is completely, completely and totally in power, his word is law and nothing can repeal it. Even his own edict cannot be repealed. He, he can't do anything about it. Once his decree goes forth, it cannot be changed. It's ultimate power. Even in a society like this, God is in control. And God is working all things for his purpose. And God knows how to deliver his people, even from the most powerful of enemies. Questions, comments? Cries about reads. All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. <clears throat> God, it's, uh, it's difficult to draw correct uh, application from just part of a story. Uh, so, God, I pray that you would help us as we kind of work through these chapters. Uh, help me to know uh, how much of the chapter or chapters we need to cover at one time to make, uh, to make it um, um, applicable to us and your spirit speak to us uh, through what you have written here in this, um, in this history. God, we pray that you would show us um, what the people uh, who first read the book of Esther uh, what they understood from the narrative, from the whole story, is that you, you protect your people. You, you protect your people. You're able to save your people. And that we need not despair or fear uh, the powers of the world, no matter how uh, devastating and absolutely in control they look. Uh, and we need not assimilate and defy your word to protect ourselves, for you're able. You're able to protect us. You're able to provide for your people. God, even through the happenstance of people overhearing conversations, uh, young, young Jewish girl being in the right place at the right time, 
God, you work through all things and we can trust you. And so, God, we put our faith in you. We put our trust in you. Uh, God, we just help us to be faithful. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.